welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. Today is February 15th, and today we're going to look at Genesis 46. Just as a reminder, every day I read from one chapter. So today we're going to read from Genesis 46, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. And so let's get into our reading today from Genesis 46. And Genesis 46 says this, And so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, and for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And then Jacob sent out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Now they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his his sons' daughters, and all of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanuk, Palu, Hazron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merai, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hazron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sarad, Elian, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in pattern a ram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and daughters number 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphon, Haggai, Shuni, Ezebian, Eri, Erodai, and Erali. The sons of Asher, Imna, Isva, Ishviva, uh, Bariah, with Zerah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Haber, and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpha, whom Laban gave to his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, and, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naim, Ei, Rosh, uh, Mupin, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushin, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bela, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. 
all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Now when Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen, he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brother and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. All the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of the livestock. And they brought their flocks and their herdsmen and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now, at both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now this is our reading from God's word today from Genesis 46. And those stunned at first that his son Joseph was still alive after thinking himself dead for many years. Jacob soon believed his son's report and became intent on seeing his favorite child again before his death in Genesis 45, 25-28. And yet the evidence that God ordained Joseph's rule over Egypt and therefore that his call for Israel to live in the land of the Nile must be heeded was not enough to convince Jacob or even to leave Canaan. He needed a word from the Lord to make him move, and we read of this divine message as we look today at our chapter. That Jacob would seek direct confirmation for his move to Egypt, it's not surprising given his family history. After all, Canaan was to be the inheritance of Abraham's descendants, according to Genesis 12, 1-9, and trouble usually followed the patriarchs and their kin when they moved outside of the borders of the promised land. And so to leave Canaan might might be a signal of unbelief, and this is why Jacob stops at Beersheba to seek Yahweh's face. Beersheba was Isaac's home, according to Genesis 26, and Jacob sacrificed there to the God of his father Isaac in Genesis 46.1. It's proof that he aligns himself with the promises of land and offspring that Yahweh has made to his fathers, demonstrating that he has faith and has not forgotten the Lord's solemn word and promise. You know, God appears to Jacob and even reassures him it is the will of the Lord for his family to temporarily move to Egypt. Notably, the Lord calls Jacob's name twice, and Jacob replies, Here I am in verse 2 of our chapter today. And this is exactly what happens when the Lord God calls and even confirms his promises to Abraham, Moses, and Samuel, and meetings pivotal to the advance of salvation history. Now, without question, then, the move to Egypt is vital to the Lord's plan. There, Jacob's family will grow into a great nation that God will later redeem for his glory, according to Genesis 46.3. Our father graciously asserts Jacob of his presence, and so the patriarch knows all that will take place, as God has said, according to verse 4 of our chapter today. And now, Jacob is also told that he will one day be brought up again from Egypt. Ultimately, this looks forward to the resurrection when Jacob, in body and spirit, will be restored to life to rule over Canaan, indeed over the new heavens and new earth, according to Daniel 12.2 and Matthew 5.5. Matthew Henry wrote, 
Whatever low or dark valley we are called into at any time, we may be confident if God goes down with us into it, that he will surely bring us up again. If he goes with us down to death, he will surely bring us up again to glory. Now, Jacob likely did not expect the Lord to call him to Egypt, and we too may find God calling us to do the hard thing for him. But like Jacob, we can be confident that he is with us even when we must go where we do not want to go. Now, Jacob has not gone without discipline for the crafty and even the deceptive way he manipulated his father Isaac and stole the blessing of his brother, the firstborn, in Genesis 27, 1-29. And aside from being tricked into marrying Leah by his uncle Laban in Genesis 29, we should also view the years that he lived thinking his favorite son was dead as an example of an eye for an eye retribution for his sins. Jacob used a goat and even some clothing to fool his father in Genesis 27. And Jacob's sons slaughtered a goat and even tore Joseph's robe to deceive their father into thinking his beloved son had been killed in Genesis 37. You see, the Lord will not allow his people to sin without facing his corrective hand, according to Galatians 6-7. And yet our Father tempers his discipline with grace so that it will not destroy us, as our chapter today reveals. God cannot let Jacob die without knowing Joseph is alive. But that's not what happens. The Lord tells Jacob that Joseph's hand will cl- shall close your eyes in verse 4. In other words, the patriarch will see his beloved son again and will precede him in death. Joseph will shut his father's eyes at his death, and Jacob will not have to endure the tragic sights no father wants to see, the passing on of the child before the parent. Our chapter is describing the beginning of Jacob's journey with his family to Egypt in order to survive the famine. John Calvin notes in his commentary on Genesis 46 that Jacob has a new vigor once God calls him into the land of the Nile. And while Jacob was certainly encouraged by God's word, it must be admitted that our chapter primarily emphasizes Jacob's frailty. He is elderly. He's 130 years old, according to Genesis 47.9. and must be carried by his sons in the wagons that the Pharaoh has provided, according to Genesis 46.5-7. As one commentator notes, this reality is a striking reminder that God's promises are not achieved by human effort. Jacob, who wrestled the Lord to a standstill in Genesis 32, cannot by himself go to Egypt where he will be made into a great nation. God must guide him there providentially directing the events that bring Joseph to power so that Jacob can stay there safely. Truly the Lord's will is accomplished by his spirit, not by our might or power, as Zechariah 4.6 says. Now, fairly recently, one Christian leader rhetorically asked a conference audience, When will we believe the power of God is where he says it is? Well, what that conference speaker is saying is that though our efforts are important, our cleverness, our respectability in the culture do not grow the Lord's kingdom. We must learn to depend on the Holy Spirit just as Jacob did, and even to seek to follow the simple directions of God's word in our everyday lives. Only then will our impact be profound and lasting. You see, despite our sin, our first parents were granted a special revelation of the Lord's grace when he promised to crush the serpent and his offspring in Genesis 3.15. Condemnation, they learned, would not be uh, the eternal lot of those who by faith are identified with the woman's seed, the Redeemer, and his people. You see, Adam's sin ruined creation, but the Almighty mercifully pledged to undo what Adam had done 
And so, the, however, the Lord also said salvation must come through suffering, especially that of his son, who is the fullest revelation of the people of God, according to Matthew 2, 13-15. The woman's seed was bruised on the cross as he defeated the devil, according to Genesis three fifteen and 1 John 3, 8. And still, though Christ suffered more affliction than his people, our Father said we would share in the Savior's pain in Colossians 1, 24. Abraham learned this truth when the Lord promised to take his sons into a foreign land and redeem them from slavery in Genesis 15. Well, you see, God God took Abraham's sons into a foreign country, as he said. Sixty-six members of Jacob's family, not including himself, went with him into Egypt, according to Genesis 46.26. Now, scholars disagree on how Moses arrived at this number, but it likely comes from adding Dinah in verse 15, and commentators tell us she is not counted in the 33 sons of Leah to the 70 male descendants of Israel named in verses 1-25 through 25 of our chapter. And so from this total, we then subtract Ur, Onan, both were dead, according to Genesis 38, 6-10. Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, they were already in Egypt already, according to Genesis 37, 28, and Genesis 41, 50-52, since these five did not travel with Jacob. Now, Moses numbers Jacob's family at 70 after telling us that 66 descendants traveled with him into the land in Genesis 46, 27. That's not a contradiction, friends. Moses is using two different numbers for two different purposes here. 66 persons journeyed with Jacob to Egypt, but 70 of his household settled in that country, including Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And Moses recorded the number 70, which is often associated with completeness in Scripture, to teach a lesson. Having 70 of Jacob's house in Egypt, it it tells successive generations how God kept his promise to Abraham that the full number of the Israelites would settle there, according to Genesis 15.13. Now, John Christendom comments on our chapter today, and it's later more consummate fulfillment. When these 70 sons of Jacob became 600,000 in Egypt in Exodus 12.37, what he says this, Be amazed and overcome at God's providence and the fact that his wishes can never fail, no matter how many times people try their utmost. You see, we can be absolutely sure the Lord will bring to completion all that he has promised. Nothing can stand in the Lord's way. You see, one of our deepest longings as human beings is to be reunited with the loved ones after a long absence. Well, consider, for example, the wife of a soldier who leaps into his arms after he returns from battle, showering him with kisses and tears, or even think of the little boy expecting a visit from his grandparents who live in another state. And so he waits for hours by the front window of his house so that he'll be the first one to see them. Whether we have children away in a college or a friend who lives hundreds of miles away, all of us have known the pain of absence and the joy of reunion. What our chapter illustrates is this experience marvelously. Having paused to list the names of those sons of Jacob who came into Egypt at Joseph's request, Moses now describes the first encounter between Jacob and Joseph in over two decades. Now we see that Joseph prepared his chariot to meet with his father in verse 29 of our chapter today. An easily omitted detail that Moses included in order to remind readers of, of Joseph's magnificent status and therefore his gracious forgiveness of those who hated him. He had the power to do otherwise, of course, but Joseph was kind to his repentant brothers, showing us how God's people repay evil with good, according to Romans 12, 14-21. 
After joyful tears and embraces, Jacob said he could die in peace after reuniting with Joseph, according to Genesis 46.30. The patriarch had been convinced that he would relentlessly mourn Joseph's death all the way to his own grave, but he could face his end with confidence and even hope after seeing his son alive. Christians today have a similar experience. Figuratively speaking, Joseph did die and rise again in Jacob's eyes. We can know the one greater than Joseph who was literally resurrected, and thus we can face death with peace, according to 1 Peter 1.3. Now, it's fitting that Jacob sent Judah ahead to lead him to Joseph, according to Genesis 46.28, since he was the one who initiated the events that caused Joseph's absence in the first place. We can also see here a faint picture of Christ. For while Jesus never sinfully sold his kin into slavery, he was also sent by the Father to reunite the Almighty with his people, according to John 3.16. Think today with me about a relative or even a friend you've, you've not seen for many years. Is the relationship in disrepair? Please take time to contact that person and restore the relationship if possible. If there is unrepented sin, please take time to pray for a new heart, whether for yourself or for somebody else. Remember that as God sent his son into the world to restore his relationship with us, so we too must be ministers of reconciliation. Now, Christians must be in the world, but not of the world, is commonly heard whenever believers discuss the relationship between Christ and culture. This is a paraphrase of John seventeen fifty through 16 and that scripture reminds us that we are obligated to live in a manner observably different from non-believers among whom we live. That means that our ministry plans, our beliefs, our ethics are not to be defined by the world around us. The Word of God is the final authoritative standard for our faith and practice. And we need to hear this truth again and again, for the church has always been tempted to adopt the sinful norms of her surrounding culture. Now, the Old Covenant church embraced pagan ways, violating the Lord's holy standard to the point where God sent Israel into exile in 2 Kings 17.7-23. What our study of Genesis has already shown us is the problems that arise whenever the ancient covenant community becomes too cozy with the pagan Canaanites. To be a holy nation, Jacob's son must reside in a land. As clearly defined aliens, they'll be less likely to adopt a lifestyle that goes against the ways of the Lord. This explains why Joseph moves to secure for his family a place in Egypt. No full-blooded Egyptian wants to associate himself with an abominable shepherd. And this will enable the Israelites to become a distinct subculture in the land of the Nile. Now, in this state of forced separation, John Calvin comments Jacob's offspring will learn to cherish more fervently mutual union between themselves. They'll begin to learn how to be God's people in the world, but not of the world. Calvin's commentary also teaches us that the Lord often permits Christians to be despised or rejected by the world, that being liberated and even cleansed from its pollution, we may cultivate holiness. We must love those who do not love God, but conforming ourselves to their standards for their approval and acceptance is disastrous. And though we must not be offensive, we should expect people to be offended by the gospel message. And as this occurs, we should thank the Lord for making us his special object of love and even rejoice that he has made us slaves to righteousness, freeing us from our bondage to sin.
Now, it's sometimes difficult to discern how to live in the world, but not of the world. But surely we are living too much according to the world's standard if we never encounter any opposition to the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Do you get any flack for following Jesus? Well, make sure it is the good news causing the offense, not a caustic or even an obnoxious personality. And if you face no harassment for serving Christ, your life may not be measurably different from the world's. Now, Abraham first heard the Lord's call at the age of 75 when God promised to multiply him and even bring him to Canaan, according to Genesis 12, 1-4. Our father in the faith did, did not experience the fullness of God's word to him before he died, for he directly fathered only one son of promise, Isaac, 25 years after the Lord first spoke to him, according to Genesis 21, 5. Likewise, Isaac did not see much of God's promise, for he also only had one promised child, uh, Jacob. And, and at Jacob's birth, 85 years had passed since the Lord called his grandfather Abraham. Isaac was 60 at Jacob's birth, according to Genesis 25:26. And Jacob saw the divine promise kept more fully than his forefathers did. He fathered 12 sons directly, according to Genesis 35. And he met more of his own grandchildren before his own death than Abraham or Isaac did. Our chapter even lists the 70 descendants that went down into Egypt with Jacob in verse 27 of our chapter today, a number of offspring far greater than Abraham and Isaac knew personally. Now, some of even Benjamin's sons listed in verse 21 of our chapter are really his grandsons, and they were not born when Jacob went into Egypt. And this shows that the number of 70 should be understood as a general number. And even tomorrow, we're going to discuss Moses' reasons for using this number when in reality, less than 70 of Jacob's offspring walk with him into Egypt. And still, as Benjamin's grandsons, they did, in a sense, travel to Egypt with their grandfather Israel, for they were present with him, if only in Benjamin's loins. And in any case, the company of offspring known to Jacob was larger than, than that known personally by Abraham and Isaac, telling him God's promise was well on its way to fruition. And yet Jacob would not see his large family become a full nation before he died, and so he too had to trust the Lord to be faithful beyond what he could see. You see, 215 years after the Lord spoke to Abraham, 25 plus 30 plus 130, his grandson Jacob had to trust the Lord to be faithful, even if his fidelity would be completely evident only after his death. The increase of his own clan gave Jacob further reason to believe God would indeed be true to his word. Today, we also wait for the promises of God to reach their fullness. And like Jacob, we have evidence all around us that the Lord is keeping his word, though the proofs we can see are far greater. Around the world today, children of Abraham from every nation are being raised up to glorify God. Let us pray faithfully for the spread of the gospel and give sacrificially that the kingdom may grow and Abraham's sons and daughters be called to trust the Messiah. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave. And today is February 15th, and we've looked at Genesis 46. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.